Good morning and greetings to each of you um, here this morning. I'd like for you to imagine with me this morning, suppose you got a personal invitation to go along with the, uh, whatever you want to call it, the best astronaut in the world to Mars. This would be an eight-month trip. No guarantee that you would ever come back. Would you accept an invitation like that? Now, just um, keep that in mind a little bit, but that, we'll come back to it. That's a bit of what Christ calling us to follow him is like. If someone were to ask you the purpose of the church, I wonder what you would say. Actually, I would, be, I would love to know what you actually would say. About 18 years ago, I did a series of sermons on the church. And at that time, I became aware there was many individuals that could not quickly or easily articulate what the purpose of the church was. And I don't know that how much that has changed since then, and the answers varied widely. As I studied at that time, I was impressed, I believe by the Holy Spirit, that one of the core purposes of the church is to make disciples. And the basis of that is found in the Great Commission. We find in Matthew 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them name of the Son, I'm sorry, baptizing them name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This idea of making disciples of all nations is an incredible responsibility and opportunity. Go and disciple all nations. And this is a present tense continuous go. Maybe another way of saying this, or a better way of saying this, would be as you go. So this is, this is ongoing. Make disciples of all nations. Three and a half years ago, Nate and Ivan and I did a series of messages around the subject of discipleship. The responsibility of making disciples requires another essential ingredient to truly carry out the Great Commission that's given by Jesus. What is unstated in these verses, but is understood if we think about it, that Jesus had just completed three years of teaching his disciples before he sent them, before he gave them this. There was three years of ministry and teaching involved with his 12 disciples. We need to be disciples before we can make disciples. We need to be following Jesus Christ before we can truly help somebody else do so. Our sermon series at the beginning of 2019 was uh, broadly called Being Disciples, Making Disciples, and, and that's what I want to entitle, or what I've entitled this morning's message, 
both being disciples and making disciples are essential to the core purpose of the church. What I have been convicted over the last several weeks is that we have neglected focusing on this subject for some time. Uh, that was before COVID, and there has been a lot that has transpired since the beginning of 2019. And so I just want to revisit us, revisit this idea, and think about this together again this morning. A disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil of, an apprentice, a follower. At the close of his ministry, Jesus is instructing his students, his disciples, his followers, for the previous three, from the previous three years to now go and make disciples of all nations, teaching others what they had learned from Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus was their teacher, their rabbi, their mentor, their role model. Their primary responsibility up to this point had been to learn all they could from Jesus. Now, as I've thought about this, I think it's important that we remember that the culture in which Jesus' life was lived and the disciples were called. And I want to just think about that a little bit here this morning. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was in Palestine. And so this is very, it's important for us to think about as we read the Gospels, as we read the stories of Jesus, it's very different than today in America than it was in first century Palestine. We just need to recognize that reality. It's also helpful for us to consider what this Great Commission probably communicated or how it was heard or received by those 11 disciples when they heard it from Jesus. Now think about it. Jesus was a Jewish man living in a Jewish country, observing Jewish customs, and investing his life in Jewish men in the context of his life here on this earth. That was his focus. That was his world. That was his life. He was born to a Jewish mother and father. I mean, it, his father, you know, was, uh, he was uh, conceived from God, but his earthly father was Jewish. He was raised according to Jewish customs. He was speaking primarily to Jewish crowds. He was surrounded by Jewish disciples. And so what do we need to know about somebody like this? And there's a lot that we don't know. But there's also, based on what we do know about that first century, there's a lot that we can assume. And, and there, we have a good idea. We know that Mary and Joseph, his parent, earthly parents, were devout Jewish, devoutly Jewish. They traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, probably each year. As he grew up, Jesus regularly attended synagogue on the Sabbath. I believe he participated in every Jewish feast. He studied and memorized the scriptures, which would have been only been the Old Testament at that time. He learned the building trade from his father, 
And he started his rabbinic ministry at age 30. All of this is very typical of any Jew at that time. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus is addressed as rabbi or teacher or master. Not always, but he is addressed that way different times. Rabbi is a term that literally means my master. It was used to address an intellectual teacher or sage, somebody that had earned the respect and the credibility for their position. The New Testament rabbi was very different from what a modern-day rabbi would be. But rabbis in the New Testament era were primarily itinerant-type preachers or teachers, very similar to a prophet in the Old Testament. They would travel from place to place and communicate the teachings and interpretations of Scripture to the masses, and they relied on the generosity of others or had uh, another occupation that supported them. So there was literally hundreds of traveling rabbis in the country at that time. But then these rabbis would also then call to themselves disciples to specifically follow them. Now, there are a few details about Jesus that we do know. Um, very few. But then assuming, and reading between the lines, assuming that Jesus was like most any other Jewish boy in that culture at that time, it's likely that Jesus learned the Hebrew alphabet as an infant. I found this fascinating. Jewish parents were instructed to teach their children the alphabet before they could walk. Now, I don't know how they did that, but that was the, that was the tradition. And then formal instruction would begin at about age five. For boys and girls, when they would enter the Beth Safir, I don't know exactly, how, but the house of the book, where reading and writing were taught using the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. There weren't any notebooks. There weren't any pencils. There certainly wasn't any iPads or computers to help them with this. If this was learned through memorization and chanting or reciting scripture. And that was the method of learning primarily at this age. By age 10, most children would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Think about that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized by age 10. Following that, from age 10 to 14, they would graduate to the Bet Talmud, or the House of Learning, where they would then study and memorize much of the rest of the books of the Old Testament. And they would, it was during this age that they would learn to answer questions with appropriate questions demonstrating their scope of knowledge. And if you notice, Jesus frequently answered questions with another question when asked. And I found it fascinating in Luke 2, at the temple, when he was left behind, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So this would have been the age when he would have been learning how to do that. And then 
really the only other scripture that we have of Jesus' uh, life between this age 12 and age 30 is this verse in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That is all the scriptures tell us about Jesus' life until age 30. Now what's fascinating is that even today, among some of the more orthodox Jews, six days per week, the adolescent boys rise at 3 a.m. to go for their ritual bath and are in school by 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning and are there until sundown. And then following supper, they go back to the synagogue for evening studies. That is still how many of these, and then on the Sabbath, they're in the synagogue all day. All of this to better learn the scriptures. At age 14 then, the most intelligent of these students would then graduate to what is called the Bet Midrash, or the House of Study. And this was to get their equivalent of a doctoral degree, doctoral level of education. But most would be unable to pass the entrance exam to do so. And so then they would return back to their family business at about age 14 or 15. Only the most elite students made it to this level. These 14 and 15 year olds would be administered tests by the rabbis to measure their knowledge. And if they met those expectations of this rabbi, he would invite them to then be his disciples until age 30. So for the next 15 years, he, they would be those disciples. And the rabbi would invite these disciples to become like him in every way, agreeing to take upon themselves his beliefs and interpretations of scripture, putting on the mantle of their teacher. And what I find fascinating, this, this taking on of what their rabbi taught them was called a yoke. It was a rare privilege and opportunity. And when you know that, the verses in Matthew 11 make a lot, take on a whole new meaning. Come to me, Jesus speaking, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was saying, take my yoke, take my mantle, take what I'm teaching you, learn from me. It's not a hardship but it's something easy. He was describing discipleship. Learn from me. Follow me. Now, a prominent rabbi that's specifically mentioned in the New Testament is Gamaliel. And we read about him twice in Acts. Um, Acts 5.34, But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside a little while. So here is a very respected rabbi. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. And we see this in Paul's testimony in Acts 22. It says, I am a Jew, born of Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, 
educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you, as all of you are this day. So Paul had this same type of teaching training as well, and he, we know the rabbi that he was taught under. Now, we don't know this for a fact, but it is likely that Jesus was among these brilliant students that were selected to receive this extra high level of education by an unnamed rabbi. Part of the reason this is true or believed to be true is because for Jesus to be recognized and acknowledged as a rabbi during his ministry would have been, he would have had to have this advanced education in order for others to even recognize him as such. But what is unique about Jesus is that rather than waiting for and identifying these most, the most brilliant students in the, of the, that time to be his disciples and selecting the best of the best, Jesus took a totally different approach. He went out and walked by the shores of Galilee, and young men who were not brilliant enough to make the cut and to be educated by a rabbi, he found them and he called them to follow him. Jesus found the rejects and asked them to be his disciples. This was unheard of. It was unthinkable. Why would a rabbi waste his time with these less intelligent men when he could have had whoever he wanted, the best disciples to follow him? And Jesus would go to them, follow me. Two simple words, but imagine the impact of those words to these individuals that were not smart enough to really get to be recognized for that and to be called by another rabbi. Follow me. Walk after me. A highly educated and intellectual rabbi was inviting someone who had failed to make the cut to be his disciple. Follow me. Did he really mean it? Did he mean me? And when we start to grasp, understand and grasp this unconventional or even counter-cultural approach that Jesus used to identify and select his disciples, we see something of the heart of Jesus. To follow a rabbi, to become a disciple of a rabbi, meant giving up everything. Career, father, mother, spouse, children, and literally walk everywhere with that rabbi day after day, from town to town, wherever he went, for years. It was an opportunity that only the elite few could dare to even think about achieving. It was not something for the masses, but it meant total sacrifice and an incredible opportunity to learn firsthand from an experienced expert, someone who knew, and becoming an avid um, student of the rabbi that you followed. Coming back to the trip to Mars, that's just one example of, you know, of what it was like for these uh, disciples 
to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. It was a sacrifice. It, it had something uh, tied to it. Another example, and not as dramatic as going to Mars, is the example of my mom. When she was 22 years old, she was considering volunteer service overseas. Her mom had died when she was 16, and her dad's health was not great. He fully supported her going to Berlin, Germany, even though she was required to make a three-year commitment with no option of visiting home while she was gone for any reason. At that time, um, commercial flying was a luxury that only the wealthiest could afford, and traveling by ship took 10 days each way. So it was not something that you could quickly decide to do. Her dad's health took a turn for the worse several months before she was to leave. But he insisted that she go ahead as planned to go on this mission, for this mission. And that, you know, if he still lingered, he wanted her to go. And she decided that she would do so. Six weeks before her scheduled departure, dad, her dad died. So she was able to be here for that. So mom left for Berlin, Germany in 1956 for three years, never to come here during that time. While she was here in Germany, two of her siblings got married. And it was not even an option for her to return for those weddings. She received only two or three phone calls from the US in that three-year period because it was so costly for international phone calls. She knew the commitment she was making when she left. She decided in advance that investing in the lives of those refugee children in Berlin was more important than anything that happened here in the United States or with her family while she was gone. When Jesus called the disciples to follow him, those were the kind of commitments that were required. It wasn't something you did in your spare time or if you had the margins to do so. It was majorly disruptive to every aspect of life previously experienced. It meant giving up everything that was normal and now invest all that time and energy in something totally different. So given this backdrop, I'd like for us to step back and read some very familiar verses in the Gospels again, understanding a little bit more the context of what was happening. These are very familiar verses. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net to the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants, and followed him. Simon, Peter, and Andrew couldn't believe their ears. This rabbi was inviting them to be his disciples, and they just literally abandoned their nets and quit their careers right there on the spot 
to follow Jesus. And same thing with James and John. They left their dad and, and the others, and it's like, we're, we're going to go do this. Math, uh, in Luke 5, then, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He was, this man was not particularly well-liked among the Jews. And when he heard this call from Jesus, he didn't give it a second thought. He just got up and walked away and left everything. We don't have the response of what Philip did or exactly what he did, but we know that Philip was named among the disciples that were following Jesus. Another aspect of this that is fascinating to me is that we don't know the ages of the disciples, but those that have done far more study of the Jewish culture than I have believe they were likely teenagers, probably 14 to 16 years old. Simon Peter may have been a bit the oldest by a year or two because he was already married. If that is true, it may explain some of the rather immature responses from the disciples at times. Um, it also explains why parents are mentioned in the context of some of these discussions, you know, leaving their father in the boat, um, the mother of James and John asking for a favor for her sons. But being a disciple of Jesus became their primary, if not sole, focus for the next three years. That was what they did. And Jesus had high expectations for all of his disciples, but even beyond these 12 that he specifically called to follow him. I'm going to just be reading a number of passages here, but not making a lot of comments. Matthew 10 um, whoever leaves father and mother more, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Three times in here, he says, not worthy of me, and lists why. Mark 4, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain, to gain the whole world and forfeit, forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's a contradiction. You know, if we attempt to save our soul, we're going to end up save ourselves, we're going to lose it. But it's when we give ourselves over to the rabbi. Then in Luke 14... Three times in here he says, cannot be my disciple. Now the crowds, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his cross, his own cross, and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him or with 20,000. And if not, while the other are yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The rich young ruler asked advice from this educated and respected rabbi called Jesus. And he, as he was setting out on his journey, a man came up and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, or rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, notice he's asking questions. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher or rabbi, all these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. Now, it's likely that this young man had not made the cut, but had become a very successful businessman. So he was trying to validate his uh, religious fervor by getting validation from this rabbi, from this respected teacher, that he had made something out of himself, even though he wasn't good enough to, do, to make that cut. But instead, Jesus countered that and invited him to do exactly the same. He invited him to come be my disciple. And he was unwilling to do that. So he was given that second chance to follow him. But he was not willing to abandon everything to follow Jesus. It was too much, too costly, too much of a sacrifice. And then there's some other... Some whom Jesus called to be his disciples did not did so immediately. Others were simply unwilling to. And we see that again in Luke 9 as well. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead and to bury their, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Notice, but, Lord, let me first. But let me first. When God... When Jesus calls, he wanted them to abandon everything right there and come follow him rather than first going and doing or delaying that decision. 
Jesus instructed his 12 disciples for three years to go and make disciples of all nations. They know what it was like. They knew what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus. Now they're calling others to do the same. They were disciples of the rabbi, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the redeemer of all mankind. For three years, these young men had walked with, talked with, eaten with, and observed all the facets of Jesus' life. The disciples had immersed themselves in the teachings and the very character of Jesus Christ. They had become disciples of Jesus Christ. Because they were disciples, Jesus entrusted them and out commanded them with the assignment then to go and make other disciples. Based on their commitment of walking after Jesus and learning from him, they had the foundation with which to then do the same to others. But the essential first step of making disciples is to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Having an awareness and understanding of what it means to personally forsake everything else to follow Jesus, day in, day out, learning from him. Having the realization that being a disciple is so much more than praying the sinner's prayer. It's a journey of following, loving, learning, being instructed, being corrected, obeying, and being molded in the image of Jesus Christ. I think the, some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture are found near the close of the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not every professing Christian will enter the kingdom of heaven, even those that have done impressive and noble things. The most disturbing word in this passage, these verses, is the word many. That's not true just for a few, but it says, Jesus says many will be turned away. And why? He turns away those that don't do the will of the Father in heaven. Our assurance is found in being true disciples of Jesus Christ, living in faithful obedience to what has been revealed in the Word. Exalting the Lord Jesus Christ has been the mission statement of this congregation for many years. How do we do that as a church or individually? I believe the best way is... The best way to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ is by being faithful disciples and making disciples. Only faithful followers of Jesus can make other disciples. Follow me. How do we respond to Jesus' call on each of our lives? Following Jesus is in the context of a group of others. The disciples followed him as a group, learning from him and from each other along the way. Go, make disciples of all nations. Teaching other disciples is essential for the church to survive and to thrive. The church and the gospel goes far beyond ourselves. Being disciples and making disciples, it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. Even as we're learning from others, we can be teaching others as well. 
my challenge to you is what are we intentionally doing to become good students of Jesus Christ, to continue study and learn from Scripture, to learn and be mentored by each other. Being a disciple means following after, learning from. It's not figuring it out ourselves. It's not going at it alone. And then beyond that, then making disciples. What are we intentionally doing to show others what it means to follow Jesus? to invest the time to teach and mentor others, to find ways to encourage and build them up spiritually. Making disciples means it's going to take time and energy, a significant amount, to, to teach them. And each one of us can learn from others. Um, we, I believe each one of us has something we can teach others, and we can learn from others as well. We're going to find that in the process of helping our others, we deepen our own understanding as well. Being disciples, making disciples, is the responsibility of every believer in every church. It's not up to the pastors to make that happen, but it's a challenge for each one of us. And think about what God could do in this congregation or any congregation, if, if men and ladies initiated weekly interaction with other believers to study scriptures, to encourage, to pray and grow together, and then those then reached out to others after that, year after year. And I believe that it would be a, a powerful way of, of developing discipleship within the church. My challenge is, let's be disciples and make disciples as we live our lives day to day, every day. Stand together with me for benediction, please. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this call to follow you. Even though we may not be intellectually worthy, that call is to each one of us. And I pray that we, that we both desire and are willing to forsake what is needed to follow you faithfully with our lives. And then beyond that, then helping others as well. I just ask that you would, you would put in our hearts both a desire and a burden to be a faithful disciple and make other faithful disciples. Help others along the way as well. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in each one of us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.